Can I ask you how your most precious relationships are doing? Isn't it the case that whatever the circumstances in life, if those most precious relationships uh, that we have, if they're going good, no matter what the circumstances in life, then, then life is pretty good. If my precious relationships are in good form. But isn't it the reverse too? Uh, that whatever the circumstance, I, I, could, I could be as high as a kite in work. My football team could be winning all over the place. However, if my most precious relationships are not in good form, then life is sour. It's hard. It's painful. Life is full of relationships. Genesis 1, do you remember? God made us in his image. And we said that a part of our image bearing of God it is to be in relationship like God. God is in relationship. There's the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. And he's made me to be relational. He's put me in relationships. We're meant to be in relationships. This is what it looks like to image God. Well, can I ask how the most precious relationship of all is going? How's your relationship with the living God, the one who's created you, the one who's formed you intricately, the one who's formed you fearfully and wonderfully, the one who's called you, you. And he's put his stamp of approval on you and said, you're very, very good from Genesis 1. How's your relationship with the living God going? Today, we read all about relationships. Remember last week when Simon helped us understand some words from Exodus 6? Do you remember the exodus out of Egypt? Do you remember God's saving work? At the very heart of the Bible, this is what we learned. It's a story of God who reveals himself and his rescue plan for mankind. Take your minds back a few weeks ago. Here's a God who will act because his covenant promises were real and true to Abraham. Here's a God who will set his people free. And we're here to remember God's promise. Because God will remember his promises. This means that he is acting in accordance with his promises today. Not random acts of history as we read through the Bible. No, this is God revealing who he is and what he's done for us in rescue. Exodus 6 verse 7 from last week. I will take you as my own people. I will be your God, says God to the Israelites. It smacks of relationship. The Israelites, they're not only redeemed from slavery, from oppression, they're redeemed to know God. Pharaoh, go. Go that you may worship your God in the end. Go that you may be with him. Go that you would be his people and worship him. See what God does. Not only does he save, rescue from slavery, from oppression, but he rescues to a relationship. He rescues a people who will be with him and will worship him. If you're a Christian, 
That's what you can say today. You've not only been saved from the consequences of sin, the punishment of sin, but you've been saved for a relationship with the living God. To say, yes, he's my saviour. To say, yes, he's my king. To say that daily, every moment matters because of who God is. He's my saviour, my rescuer, but he's also my Lord. Here's three things that we're going to look at uh, when it comes to relationships. Here's the first one, the strained relationship with the Holy God. Look at chapter 19 with me and you'll see there verse 1 of chapter 19. On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, therefore three months have gone since God's people crossed the Red Sea. And they come now to the desert of Sinai and they camp at the foot of Mount Sinai. It's three months since they crossed the Red Sea. Remember, if you've ever watched it, the Prince of Egypt, there will be miracles playing in the background as they go through the waves of this fish, that side and that side. And they walk through miraculously. This is God as he rescues. Three months. And now they're at the foot of Mount Sinai. Verse three, then Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, this is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles wings and brought you to myself. (laughs) Look how God starts the conversation with Moses. Do you remember? Of course you remember. It's only three months ago. Do you remember how I did this? Do you remember? Look at verse four. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt. Remember the plagues and how I carried you on eagles wings. This is God and he's saying, do you remember me? I'm your God. I'm the one who has rescued you. How have the people responded to this magnificent relationship in the last three months? Do you want to know? Let me give you a, a quick whistle stop, whistle stop tour uh, of the last three months of the Israelites. Chapter 15, verse 24. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we to drink? Chapter 16, verses 2 to 3. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Not so good, hey? Chapter 17, verse 3. But the people were thirsty for water there and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Three months. The most incredible rescue of all time through the waters. Plague after plague after plague after plague. Pharaoh, go, 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 go. You must go. And three months in, it was better in Egypt. Far better. Why have you brought us here to die? Oh my, we read this and go, what are you doing, God's people? But it sounds ever so familiar in my life. I know God's a rescuing God. 
I trust him for forgiveness of my sins. And in the same breath, I complain about him as well. I complain about the conditions, circumstances I'm in. Here was one of mine the other day, a few months ago actually, but I was reminded of it as I walked in the garden. Lord, why? Why are there so many ants on my lawn? That was my question for God. As I went round with ant powder trying to kill those little rascals. Why, God? Just sort my lawn out, would you please? Something more serious. I haven't had a pay rise in five years. God, don't you care? Please provide. Or maybe for some of us, those sleepless nights. God, please, please. Would you just make my child sleep? Please. So it's not too distant. I know I've got a rescuing God. And yet on the same hand, I can complain to him. I can grumble. God, please, don't you care? Don't you care? He's rescued me from the consequence of sin, which is punishment, which is to depart from him forever in hell. And he's rescued me. I complain about the ants on my lawn. And so God continues the conversation with Moses. It's all about relationship. And yet it's a strained relationship. It seems a far cry from Adam and Eve walking in the garden. Adam and Eve walking in the garden with God. They walked with him. Look now how this strained relationship is going to work out. Look in verse 10. Well, verse nine, the Lord said to Moses, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. And the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Make them wash their clothes. Look, here are a few things that show us how strained this relationship is. They have to purify themselves. They have to wash their clothes. It it reminds us and them that their sins have cut them off from God. Some kind of purification must happen. Verse 12, put limits for the people around the mountain. Tell them, be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the foot of the mountain is to be put to death. God's saying to Moses, you must be careful. You must put limits, boundaries around the mountain. And it reminds us and the people that the barrier still remains between God and the people that he's created. And it's repeated from verse 20 onwards. Did you notice that as David read the chapter? It's exactly the same. This is important. This is crucial for God. And it's only Moses and Aaron then later on, verse 23 and 24, that can approach God. Here are signs of the strained relationship rather than a warm delight an intimate relationship with God it is far from that and did you see how they reacted verse 16 on the morning of the third day there was thunder and lightning and with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast everyone in the camp trembled So much for that relationship. 
there in the Garden of Eden, their promise to Abraham that you will be a blessing and blessed by God because of the relationship you have with God. Why is this? Why does God promise a relationship and yet seem so distant? A barrier to stop people approaching him. Only Moses and Aaron, the two can do that. A trembling people who stand in fear of God. Why? The promise was of relationship to Abraham. Why? Well, here's the answer. We've sung about it already, the first song we sang. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, was, is, is to come. Our God is our holy God. You see, fire and cloud are symbols throughout the Old Testament of the very presence of God. God is here. And the people cannot enter into that presence of God. They'll be consumed by the holiness of God. They'll be consumed by him because a holy God requires holiness. And a holy God cannot welcome with arms open wide into that loving relationship an unholy people. They don't go. I bought a prop, but I can't find my bag. I'm sure you can get over not having a prop. Oh, it's in there, Helen. There's a little candle. <coughs> now, you know, uh, if I'm leading uh, the gathering, then <laughs> every time I lead, I say, well, fire, fire, uh, exit that way, meet in, the, uh, meet in the yard over there. And I thought, well, just maybe today we could actually trial it uh, if I set this off and, uh, and put some paper to it and off we go. I won't. Here's the prop. It's a candle. We've got a bigger one in our house uh, just by the fireplace. And when we light it, usually in the winter, uh, and there's, uh, there's one or two, no, there's six wicks around it. So he's a big lad, far bigger than this. And the, the chat to the, uh, to the little ones is, don't go near it, because it will consume whatever it touches. And of course, the question is, what does consume mean? Good question. Why don't we just use simple language, try and be cleverer than uh, we are as parents. Here's what consume means. It means whatever touches the flame will be burnt up, Corabel, Tommy, Talitha. Do you know what that means? It means that it will be destroyed. So if you put a paper there, the paper will be no longer. Do you know if you put your finger there, it will burn it. And if you hold it there, it will destroy your finger. Here's a picture. And it's a silly picture. Well, no, it's not. It's quite a good picture. But it's a simple picture. Of God in his holiness. He's holy. He hates sin. He cannot have anything to do with sin. That's what makes him so good. And when unholy people come into his presence, he cannot help but consume them. His holiness consumes them. It's not out of a spite does he point the finger and say, I hate you for how you treated me. No, he cannot help but consume them because of his enorm- the enormity of his holiness. Like a paper or a finger that comes into contact with a naked flame. That's like God's holiness. So you see how loving and gracious God is being when he tells Moses not to let people come up the mountain. 
This is a God who still loves his people. This is a God who still cares. Put limits for the people around the mountain. Tell them, be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain is to be put to death. Even now we see God and his goodness and his grace, a caring relationship between him and his people. And yet it is strained. Well, here's the second area, an impossible demand for a relationship with the holy God. The promise to Abraham was that I will bless those who bless you. All the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This blessing comes through relationship. It was an unconditional promise. Do you remember with Abraham? This is what I will do for you, said God to Abraham. He said, whoa. How can this be? I have no son. And on the conversation went. Do you remember it? Well, you see, that covenant promise with Abraham, it has to be fulfilled. Because God is a covenant God who keeps his promises. But we've seen that sinful man cannot enter the presence of God lest he be consumed. So how is this possible? Is it not an impossible demand for a relationship with the Holy God? Impossible. Go back to verse 5 in chapter 19. Here's God. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Here's God's solution. If you want to enter into my presence to be with me, I've created you to be with me. If you want to be in my presence, then you must be obedient fully. Obedience leads to fulfill the promise. See how the covenant has changed. It was unconditional before. God would say, this is who I am and this is what I've done. And now he's saying, this is my part. Here's your part. The covenant's not changed. It's developed. Sorry, backtrack. It's developed. If you obey me fully and keep my covenant, Then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession, God says to Moses. Treasured possession. This signifies a personal, a deep, deep relationship, a valuable relationship. You will be one whom I will love dearly, God says to Moses, to his people. And he goes on, although the the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests. You will have access to me. That's what that means. You'll have access to me, the holy God, as we go through the Old Testament and see what the priesthood does. You will be with me. And then you will be a holy nation. Those who will be distinct, you'll be set apart. You'll be different. You will be my people. (laughs) And are you still scratching your head and thinking it's an impossible demand for a relationship with the Holy God? Is God just very unfairly dangling a carrot in front of the noses of the Israelites and saying, go on then, 
Now the relationship, my promise, depends upon you and your goodness and your obedience. Is that what he's doing? Well, look in chapter 20. And these will be familiar to all of us, whether we knew the the Ten Commandments were in Exodus 20 or not. They'll be familiar to us. And so as Moses in chapter 20, he heads up to receive the conditions of the law. He heads up to receive the Ten Commandments, the means by which God's people, if they follow and remain obedient, will be his treasure possession. So we have these 10 rules, these 10 demands. We're not going to go into them in depth, you know. The first four are about my, mine and your relationship to our holy God. And the second set, the next six in relationship to everyone else. As the Lord Jesus later on pulls it all together and said, here's the greatest command that you will love your Lord, your God, with all your heart, soul and mind and love your neighbour as yourself. The Ten Commandments wrapped up into one great command and the next three and a half books of the Old Testament, the Torah, are now given over another f- to the focus of the covenant with the, that God is establishing with his people. The conditions for holiness. It is that important. So how will they respond? Be obedient. You have to now be obedient. To be with God, to be his treasured possession. How will they respond? Come with me quickly to 24. A few pages on, chapter 24. Look at verse 3 of 24. When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice. Classic Israelite. Classic me. Everything the Lord has said, we will do. Look at verse 7. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Can I just remind you, Genesis 6 verse 5. God knew that every inclination of all the thoughts of the heart of man was only evil all the time. And here are the Israelites saying everything the Lord has said, we will do. We will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. No, dear Israelite. Because every inclination of all the thoughts of your heart are only evil all the time. Exodus 32. Sorry, I'm jumping ahead, but come with me. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, it's like Moses was up and he was down and he was up and he's down. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. And Aaron answered them, Take off your gold earrings that your wives, your sons and your daughters are wearing. Bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol, cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. (coughs) Exodus 32. 
16 chapters after Exodus 20. 12 chapters after Exodus 24, which says we will obey. Yes, we will do everything. An impossible demand for a relationship with the holy God. Is it? Is it? What do we do with the law today? What do we do with Exodus 20 today? If we know that the Israelites pretty much 10 minutes later couldn't hold to it. What do we do with it today as we understand that it's God's covenant plan for a people to be with him, to be his treasure possession, if they will be obedient to it? What do we do with the law? Well, here's what we do with it. Maybe three things as we close. You see what the law does? It it makes us fully aware of our sin. Do you see that? It makes me fully aware that I am not right, that I'm not good before God. Romans 3.20 says this, Therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. It makes me aware that I am wrong and I am in need of something far greater than my obedience to the law. I cannot follow God's law and rule. One. Secondly, what does the law do? Does? Well, it, it reveals God's good standards, doesn't it? Obedience to it marks us out as God's people. Romans 7 verse 12 says this, So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. Very often I think I've come to the law and gone, mm, do you know what? Oh, it's not that good, is it? It just shows me that I'm sinful. Therefore, the law's not that good. Didn't achieve anything, the law. No, no. The law is holy. The law is good. The law is life-giving. It's just that I don't hold to it. The commandment is holy, it's righteous, it's good, it's from God. Okay, first two things, makes me fully aware of sin and it reveals God's good standards. And yet, isn't it still an impossible demand for a relationship with God? Well, yes, impossible for me. Impossible for me on my own to enter that relationship with the Holy God. And therefore, and I hope you knew it was coming. Therefore, stage right, enter the Lord Jesus. Third thing, Jesus meets the demand to bring us back into a relationship with the Holy God. See what the law does? It points me to a greater need. It points me to something else that is needed. And it points me to the Lord Jesus. Galatians 3.23 says this. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Here it is. Righteousness comes from faith in Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ was obedient unto a holy God, even unto death, 
even when he was tempted for 40 days in the desert, even when though he cried out with God to take the cup away when he was in the garden of Gethsemane, even then the Lord Jesus did not sin. The Lord Jesus was obedient. He fulfilled what the law required. So what do I do with the law? Makes me fully aware of sin. It does reveal God's good standards, his holiness. And it pushes me to look forward to Jesus because Jesus meets the demand of the law to bring us back into a relationship with the holy God. Do you trust the Lord Jesus to do that for you today? How's your relationship with God? If you're a Christian, the Lord Jesus has brought you back. He's done everything. In his obedience, he's, he's gone to the cross. And next week, we will learn what sacrifice means, why the Lord Jesus had to be a sacrifice. But for this week, let's see that the Lord Jesus, he was obedient to the law. He met the full requirements of a holy God. And if I trust in him today, he brings me back into this perfect relationship with God. How do I view the law today? Hey, I try and follow it. He's put a spirit in me, his spirit, that enables me to live, that enables me to be obedient to this law. The law doesn't achieve me righteousness. No, no, because I fail it. The Lord Jesus achieves righteousness for me. And following the law is not a sense of paying God back, but it's now out of a realisation of gratefulness, a gratitude for God who saves. And now a desire to live for him. The law is good. It is a good thing. It is life giving. It is something that we cannot keep. And so it points me to something, something greater that is needed. And it points me to the Lord Jesus. And so today, friends, as we think about the law, think about what it does for us. Think about how Christ fulfills it. And think about what it looks like to live in light of it. Not out of a sense of paying back a debt, but out of a gratitude to God for all that he's done.